0: We just sang together about God's love and about how his heart won't stop coming after us. And I wonder if you might think that there comes a time when God's love for a person might actually run out. A time where his patience has been tested for too long and he's finished Giving more chances. A few years back, I was giving a message uh, at the church where I was pastor down in uh, South Jersey compared to here, right? It's really the shore, but it's a different land down there compared to the wilds of the north and summit. But I was, I was really giving it everything I had to speak about God's love, merc- God's mercy, which is new every morning, and His love which has no end, and his faithfulness, which is always for us. And if you've been at Renaissance a bit, you see, you know, sometimes I really get into it. I was getting into it. I was like floating and everybody in the front was into it. But there was one woman in the second row, no emotion at all. And I'd not seen her before. And when I got toward the end of my message, she actually looked angry, even a little disgusted. And The service ended, some folks came forward to talk to me, and while they talked, I noticed that she stayed right there in her seat. And then as I was carrying on with a few others, I saw her stand up and walk to the back where she went and sat down by herself. And she just sat there waiting. Everybody was gone. I walked over to her to introduce myself. She did not tell me her name, She simply said, don't you think there's a time when God's love finally runs out for a person? Don't you think his patience can only go so far and then it's done? How can you say that he loves all people? You don't know anything at all about me. Now I got to know her over the next few months Her life was in such disarray Uh, for various reasons. The only time that she didn't feel anguish was those moments when she was throwing herself into relationships which she knew were completely wrong. Her question about the limit of God's love was not for her a hypothetical question. She was actually asking for herself. And the reason she looked disgusted was because my suggestion that God loves everyone and that there is no end to his love, to her, it sounded too good to be true. And I don't mean that in a figurative sense. It literally sounded too good to be true. She was disgusted with herself and she could not believe that God's love could still be for her. His patience must have reached an end when it came to her personally. Some of us in here, we're not in the same place as she is. Maybe every one of us knows someone who is. Or we have those occasional moments where when we look at ourselves without the mask on, we wonder, might God's love run out for me? Or we might see that other person in our lives and we know for sure his love can't be for them after all, all those things he's done. This morning this is what I aim at. It's very simply setting before all of us the nature of God's love. And what I want you to see is that it is true that God's love will not stop coming after us. That it is, in fact, the case that there is no limit for God's patience for every single one of us. That his love is not like the love that we often picture in our own minds when we wonder, is it possible for God to love me? And the way we're going to see this this morning is as we continue in our series that we've been pursuing this summer, as we look at different characters of faith. And we're gonna learn this morning from a character named David. Uh, Now, if this is your first time ever in a church, uh, you've never heard a Bible story uh, described from a place like this, then I know you still have some familiarity with David. Uh, the giant Goliath was killed by a boy with a sling and a rock. And, and some of you know who that was, right? The killer was? David. Yeah, don't be shy. That nude marble statue in Florence, Italy, carved by Michelangelo, that is? David. You've seen him without his clothes on. <laughs> The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know those words? Those are David's words. And the reason I want to set David before us this morning, very simply, is so that we have a clear picture of what God's heart for us is like. Whether we sit in the place that, where that woman sat, thinking he can't love me, or we're sure he loved he loves us and wonder about how he feels toward others. And the, the reason that David will show us God's heart is simple. Uh, if you know his story well, you know that sometimes he looks like a scoundrel. And he is. But the Bible says more than once that David is a man after God's own, do some of you know this? Heart. Which means when we see David's heart genuinely, not the passions running this way and that, but the true heart of this man shows us what God's heart is like. And so I want to set before you, every one of you, a picture of David's heart so that we can see what God's heart is like toward us, so we understand the nature of God's love. There's two reasons why I want to do this this morning. The first is very simple. When we see God's love for us, it changes us, and we all need to be changed. And in the ways that we change when we know God's love for us, that's what we need Uh, That's what we need personally, and for the relationships that we have with our spouse, our family, our neighbors, our friends, the people at work, the strangers around us, we need to be changed, and seeing God's love changes us. That's the first reason I wanna set it before us. Uh, Here's the second reason. The truth about just about every one of us is that we have a pretty immature picture of what love looks like, and we need for that to change. Uh, And I'm not gonna stand up here and wag my finger at you. Let me talk about me. Very often, my way of of thinking about love in my actions looks an awful lot like I looked when I was in third grade. Anyone else here fall in love when they were in third grade? Yes, I had my first love in third grade. It was February, it was in music class. We were practicing for the upcoming celebration of St. Patrick's Day and Shannon Halverson did the Irish jig and my heart was won. The, 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 the socks, the little dress, the tapping, you know, that was it. And I started to think, how can I get her to know that I love her and to love me back? That's all I could think about. And thankfully, you know what happens in the middle of February, right? Valentine's Day, or Valentine's Day is what I called it then, Valentine's. And that meant I would go to school with a little bag, right? Filled with the cards that mom bought me and all of them were, you know, perfunctory for everyone in the class, but the one that mattered was the one that I would deliver on that day to Shannon Halverson. I started to rack my brain. How could I, how could I win her heart with, and so instead of getting one of those little ones, you know, that you get at the store, I choo choo choose you with a little train. I got <laughs> myself, I got myself an index card and I put my poetic imagination to work. And I, I engaged every romantic molecule in my whole bo- in my whole body as I planned it out, and here's what I came up with. Dear Shannon, do you love me? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> Check one. <laughs> and I put two boxes. It was a masterpiece. I, I delivered it into that little paper bag on her desk, and I went back to mine, and then I sat and I watched to see what she would do when she took it out. And I saw her take out all the others, but then I saw when mine came out. And I saw her, and she didn't have reading glasses, but imagine she did. And I saw her take mine in her hand and she read it. She looked at me. She took out a pencil. She did that. And, and there wasn't just a check, she started to do this. My heart was racing. She called over her friend, a courier. She gave her the message. She delivered it purposefully into my bag. I took it out, and to my heart's delight, she had checked the box, yes. But then I looked down, and to my utter dismay, she had also checked the box, no. And beside each box, she'd written a message. Yes, if you love me. No, if you don't love me. And so I wrote on it, let's do this, and we delivered it back. And we were making out in the coat closet that afternoon. We were. That's my wife right there. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't special. <laughs> it was gross. There was like a fish tank was also in there and it hadn't been cleaned for a long time. But, but my heart was hers until next week when Andrew Dunn came along and stole her heart from me. And I shouldn't have been surprised given the nature of our love, which was captured on that Valentine's Day card, which, whether we like it or not, is an awful lot like the way most of us treat love, even as adults. Here, love for many of us is a contract which is based on costs and benefits. An arrangement between two people, both of whom agree, as long as the cost to me does not exceed the benefit to me, then I will be in this relationship with you. But as soon as it changes, then I'll go find someone else who gives me more at a lower price. It sounds awfully crude, but that's the way it tends to work in third grade. And when we grow up, well, it just takes on a different, a different look. But in many ways, that's how we approach love if I get something from you, I give it to you. But if it costs me more than I'm willing to pay to get what used to be cheaper, but now has cost more, I might start looking somewhere else to get it. And this happens obviously romantically between to- so many men and women who will say, I've fallen out of love, and what they mean is, it's just started to cost more than I get but it happens in so many of the relationships that we find ourselves in, whether we'd like to admit it or not. For so many of us love in our human interactions with friends, with neighbors, with people that we know at church, with our family members and even our spouses really becomes a contract. And we're in it as long as it doesn't cost us too much. But once it starts to be too expensive, we might look somewhere else. If you were honest with your own approach to the people you're closest to, I bet you'd see that you act like this. And listen, I I have no purpose this morning in making you feel bad. But I want to say this, this is absolutely critical. The greatest danger for us is that we take this understanding of love into the way that we think about God. And so a man can stand and talk poetically about God's love for us. And we can sit thinking, if he only knew, then he wouldn't say it. Because I am sure that God maybe loves others, but his patience for me must have run out already. I keep stumbling on the same mistakes. I keep exhibiting the same ugly behaviors. I've thrown myself into a life which I know is the wrong life and I'm doing it anyway. It's the only way I get any relief from this challenge I face in life. If God does love others, he can't love me because we take our understanding of love and we project it onto God. And, and listen now, can we put all romantic notions aside and admit for a moment that it just makes sense that we should treat love like this? It makes sense in third grade. And, it, and in some ways, it seems to make sense later on. David, the man after God's own heart, is going to show us what real love looks like, what love, what the love that God has for us looks like, because the truth about God's love for us is it doesn't look anything like this. Uh, It looks quite different. The episode that I want to set before us in the life of David is one that is lesser known than many of the others. It has to do with uh, a very poignant moment in his relationship with one of his many sons, a son called Absalom. David had 19 sons. His family was dysfunctional. That is an understatement. Anyone in here know what it's like to have a dysfunctional family? Don't look at your family member and say, yes. But his family was a mess. Absalom, one of his sons, murdered another one of David's sons, not from the same mom. The story behind that murder is so ugly. The resentment that it caused in Absalom's heart spilled over into his murderous rage as he exacted revenge on his own brother. And so in one day, David loses two sons, the one who is killed and the one who does the killing, Absalom, because Absalom flees and he runs away. Would you imagine for a moment being a father who loses two sons like that in a day? Can't we admit parenting can cause your heart to swell and feel great, but it can also cause the deepest of all miseries? Imagine you are David. Absalom stays away for a long time until word comes to David against all odds that, excuse me, until word comes to Absalom that against all odds, his father David has decided to extend forgiveness. He invites Absalom to come back from where he is and he gives him a piece of land right outside the city of Jerusalem where David is the king. Now Absalom moves back with his family But their relationship isn't warm and fuzzy all at once. Two years pass before they even see one another face to face. And when they do, David extends forgiveness to his son Absalom, but Absalom is still cold and distant because he has resentment smoldering in his heart. He sets up a plan to overthrow his father's rule as king in the land. Imagine this. Every day Absalom stays by the gate where men and women come in and out of the city looking for some time with the king, and he sows distrust in the hearts and minds of everyone who comes in. David the king, he won't have any time for you. Let me judge your issues. And he does this for four years straight. And during that time, he builds such a consistent and large gathering of faithful people that they begin to suggest, you know Absalom, you're the one who should be king, not David anymore. And so they lead David out, they they force David out of, of the palace where he is the king by leading Absalom in so that he overthrows David and David has to flee for his life because this son who murdered his other son has now usurped his throne and David flees and goes into hiding in the wilderness while his son Absalom takes over the rightful throne that belongs to David can you imagine being this father uh, if you're going to see his heart you must try the narrators who tell this story in 2 Samuel they give us a vision of what it's like for David while he's hiding in the wilderness And they set it right beside what it's like for Absalom while he's planning his father's death in the palace. Uh, I want to show you an exchange between Absalom and one of his military advisors. This is in chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, Look at this conversation. Ahithophel said to Absalom, and yes, obviously I practiced saying Ahithophel. (laughs) Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. David is his father. David is his father who forgave him. David is his father who gave him another chance and some land to live on. And now he's plotting how to kill his father while he is in the worst place he could be, discouraged and fleeing in the wilderness. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace." That is, Ahithophel says all 12,000 men will have the same singular goal and that is to kill your father. Verse four, the advice pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. David's hiding in the wilderness at night. He has his troops who are with him While his son is making this plan in his palace, David is speaking with his military advisors in the woods. He's got three of them. Here's what David says to them. This is verse five in chapter 18. The king, David, ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people Heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. What do you think it sounded like to those people who heard David give this command? Use your imagination. Do you think they thought, oh, that's awfully nice of him to give his son another chance like that? Wow, what a great military commander. We're glad that he's our king. Do you think that's what they felt? No. He looks really foolish. But this is a moment when we see the heart of David toward his son. Please understand, Absalom has decided to use all the power he has for one purpose, to try to kill his father. And David has decided to restrain all the power he has for one purpose, to preserve the life of his son. The battle begins to unfold as Absalom's plans become a reality. He and his 12,000 men leave the city of Jerusalem, enter the wilderness at night, hoping to surprise and overwhelm David. But what they're not prepared for is the fact that David has been a warrior and his men have been in charge of battles for far longer than they have. And so when they come into the wilderness, David's men out, overpower Absalom's men and they are altogether thrown into confusion and disarray and they are routed. The men begin to flee in every direction. The battle does not go as Absalom had hoped and we find, the narrator recounts, the singular moment where Absalom finally meets his own end. He is fleeing on a mule which takes him underneath the branches of a low oak tree when his hair and head are tangled up in the branches. The animals flees, and there Absalom is stuck in the tree, when one of his commanders, one of David's commanders, sees him and approaches. He remembers what David had said, deal gently with the boy Absalom on my behalf. And so he does not attack him, and he waits until Joab comes along, and he tells Joab, there Absalom is, the commander of our enemies. You heard what David said. I've decided not to attack him. Shall we take him prisoner? Joab looks at him and says, you are a fool take him prisoner, that's the last thing we should do. He grabs a spear out of his hand, grabs two other spears and drives all three of them right through the heart of Absalom as he hangs in the tree and dies. We might think that seems harsh, but it makes sense because Absalom is in charge of the army that has come up against David and all of his people. Now, David is back in the city, not knowing what is to come, in the battle, when two runners decide to bring the news to the king of what has happened. The first one does not know that his son has been killed, but he only knows that the war is over because all of Absalom's men flee after he dies. The second one knows exactly what has happened. I want you to see with me David's response in each case. In verse 28 of chapter 18, the news of victory comes to David from Ahimaaz. This is verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. That is, victory is ours. That is the news that he has given to David. And I want you to look at David's response in verse 29. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? He's just received word that the troops that have come up against him have been defeated and he only cares about one thing. And that is what has happened with my son Absalom? Now I want to ask you a question. Don't you think there's a time where the love of a father for his son will finally come to an end? Don't you think there's a time where it makes sense to be forgiving and gracious, but only up to a certain point? After that, it doesn't make sense anymore. The time for forgiveness, well, it seems like it's past. Can you see that with me? I know that there's a part of us that wants to say, no, I would give in over and over and over again. Has your son ever killed your other sibling and then tried to kill you after, has that happened? (laughs) If it has, look, let me be honest. Many of us who are in this room will have adult children who have tested and tried our patience beyond what any reasonable person could possibly manage. And I know this because I've talked with some of you about it. Many of us in this room will have tested the patience of our own parents beyond what is reasonable for them to continue to manage. Many of us in here will say, yes, but there's something about the love of a parent for a child. And it's true, isn't it? But even that has its limits. I know that's not the most romantic thing to say. But here we have a young man who is a murderer once and wants to be again and has has gathered the power of 12,000 against his father. And yet, David's single concern is the well-being of that son. Remember what David shows us? He's a man after God's own heart. Which means his heart is different than our hearts will often be. Many of you in here have learned about love, that you're in it as long as it doesn't cost too much. But once it starts costing too much, then it's okay to get out. Here is David facing the cost. And you see in his heart, the love he has for Absalom. The second messenger shows up in verse 31. Then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good tidings for my Lord, the King. For the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. Same message as the first man. King, good news. Those enemies have been thwarted and we're free. We can return back to the, to, the, to the city where you are the king. We can go back to the palace and you can live at ease again. Our enemies have been overthrown. Verse 32, the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? Again, the only thing he cares about is the well-being of his enemy. Do you see that? Look at how the Cushite responds. The Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. That is, your son is dead. Thank God. And may everyone who's turned themselves into your enemy as he has face the same future. That makes sense. It's a completely reasonable response to the news that Absalom has finally been killed. Love doesn't make sense. Love is unreasonable. Love is foolish. I'm not talking about the contract that we often enter into where we agree to give just so much until the cost gets too high. That makes sense. I'm talking about love, which is different than that. And the reason I can tell you that love is not like that Is because what we see in David is what love looks like. What we see in this man's response to Absalom, who has no reason to receive his father's love anymore, is what God's love for us looks like. And listen, God's love for you and for me is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. It's utterly unreasonable. It's like what happens here. Because when Absalom is dead and the news finally comes to David, look at what David says. This is verse 33. The king was deeply moved And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, five times in one sentence, he refers to this enemy of his as his son which means he's determined not to treat him according to his actions, but rather his true identity, which is his son. This news, which made everyone else glad, breaks David's heart so much so that he voices the true cry of his affection for his son, which is would that I had died instead of thee. That means I wish that it was me. I wish that I was the one who was dead. Instead of him, I wish I had had the spears through my own heart for this enemy of mine. Oh, Absalom, my son. This moment of raw and true affection and commitment is what God's heart for every one of us looks like. Let me make this observation about David's love. Uh, Let me make a few of them. Uh, First, and I want you to uh, see this with me, David's response to the death of his son Absalom and the whole story of his relationship with him reflects this very simple fact that true love rejects the cost-benefit contract so common in what we call love. Do you see it? Uh, in effect, Absalom returns the card that David sends with his love and checks the no box and writes beside it, no matter how much you love me, I will not love you. But what David does in response to that is decide to go on loving his son anyway. Do you see how profoundly he rejects that contractual arrangement which we call love? Do you? What? What? The second fact that we see here in this narrative about what love is like is that it, it is true love which is willing to give and give and give everything even though it costs everything and there is nothing which is given in return. Here we could not see the reversal of give and take in a greater degree than what we observe here. That is that there is nothing worse that a son could do than what Absalom has done. And David's expression is that there is nothing more that a man could give than his own life for his son. And not his son who is a beloved son, but his son who has made himself into an enemy. There is no starker contrast than that. And here we see what true love looks like, which is the willingness to give even if it costs everything and there's nothing in return, nothing but hate. Hatred comes for this love. And yet David wants to give it. Would that I had died instead of thee. That's the second thing we see. And then the third thing we see. And here I want to ask you to set aside all sentimentality and all romantic ideas about love and be honest. The third thing we see here about true love is that it is altogether foolish. It looks so stupid, it's shameful. It is utterly unreasonable and absolutely insane for David to respond like this to the news that his son died. Do you see that? If you read on in the narrative, there is not one single person among all of David's people who watch his reaction and say, wow, how How heartfelt that is. How touching that the father feels sad for the death of his son. No, it is actually quite the opposite. He goes blubbering over the death of this enemy into his quarters and he's followed by Joab, one of the commanders, who comes to him and says right to his face, what is wrong with you? You should be utterly ashamed of yourself. In fact, you are bringing shame upon all of us. You are returning love for hatred. This man was out to kill you and all of our troops and you're gonna to go on crying for him, you wipe your face off, come back out in front of our troops and show some dignity, man. No one will ever respect you again. And that's actually a perfect response to what true love is, which is altogether crazy and stupid and how unreasonable it is. Do you know that? If you love like this, people will think there is something wrong with you. And this is the fourth observation about this love. And it's been bleeding out already, but it is exactly what God's love for us is like. Exactly. The only difference is what David wished he could do for his son, the Bible tells us that God has in fact done for us. And that's stupid. I mean, forgive me for saying it, but it's just so foolish. It's so utterly unreasonable And I'll tell you this, if you hear about God's love for you and you start to think, well, yeah, that makes sense, of course, that's God's job to do that. You haven't heard the first thing about it. Only when it makes you think, gosh, that's embarrassing that God would go that far to love me. Only then would you begin to grasp what God's love for you is actually like. Only when you sit after a message like this and think, yeah, that's nice and all, but it can't possibly be true. Isn't there a time when his love will finally end? Don't you think there's a limit to how much you can forgive someone? That's when you begin to grasp the reality of God's love. When it makes you say, like Joab said, that's foolish. The way that God's love for you is described by the apostle Paul, whose faith we considered a few weeks back with the help of Mitchell. The way that his love is described for us looks an awful lot like David's love for his son Absalom. Listen to these words in Romans chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And ungodly means so ugly in disposition and attitude and action that any person who took God's call to righteousness seriously would be embarrassed to be around a person like that. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. That is, if we're gonna talk reasonably here, maybe if someone were good enough, then a person might dare to die for another person. But the ungodly one, and some of you in here this morning, Look at yourself and you say, yes, that's me. Others of you in here this morning, you're tempted with the belief deep down inside that God could never love you. Or maybe you're sure that God couldn't love those other people. But hear the good news. This is verse eight in Romans chapter five. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which means God in Christ did what David wished he could do for Absalom, but could not. And that means this is what love is. It is not a contract based on costs and benefit. It is instead a promised determination on the part of one who loves, who has decided that no matter what it costs, he will always love us. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. And that's true. Now, what if we took this to heart? Uh, these three things quickly. For starters, our relationship with ourselves would change. If you would first and foremost see yourself as the beloved son, no matter how rebellious, the beloved daughter of God the King, well, then there'd be an awful lot of things that uh, that you used to care about way too much that you'd be able to let go of. And many things besides that you'd be able to cling to that were new for you to care about. You'd be free to trust in God's love for you no matter what. Here, a second thing. If you would take this to heart, it would change your relationship with the people around you because you would know that you don't see anyone accurately until you see them first and foremost as the one that God has decided to love and has loved in his son, Christ, to the point of dying for them. And I'll tell you what, that would change the way you dealt with all of the people around you. The people who you're closest to in your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people at work, and the strangers that you encounter. And here's the third thing. And for me personally, as the pastor of Renaissance Church, this is the most important that I wanna say to you this morning. For us as individuals to take this to heart will change the character of this church in the way that it needs to be changed. That is, we would become a beacon of light in a dark place, in a dark time. And not a light that shines on us, but a light that shines on the character and nature of God's love which is nothing like the love that we learned about in the third grade, but which rather is a committed promise from God to love all people. And I mean all people. Even the enemies who have decided that it's their job to to do away with us. You can meet that hatred with hatred, but that'll only perpetuate the hate. But love is stronger than that. And I want us to be a church that's shaped by God's love. And so you are invited this morning to see in David's heart for Absalom, God's heart for you, for all of the people in your life, and for everyone that we will ever encounter as a church at Renaissance Church. Let's pray. God, for the story of David and Absalom, we give you thanks. We thank you for the way that it gives us a glimpse of your heart to look at David's heart. I ask very simply that each one of us would be able to rest secure in your love for us in Christ, that there would be no doubt in our hearts anymore, not a claim to your love, but rather a stunned gratitude for how good you are and how gracious you've decided to be to each one of us. Help us have that attitude toward ourselves, but not only ourselves alone, but also may we see every man and every woman, every child and every grown-up in our lives through the lens of your love. And then God, would you change our church so we become a beacon of your love in this time and place which needs it so desperately. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray, amen.